The Eucharist is a touchstone of unity in the life of the church, and because the Roman and the Eastern churches bar faithful Christians from the table, I cannot in good conscience be part of their traditions. I once again find that I am too Catholic to be Catholic. Received directly from Christ. When we read St. Paul's instruction to the Corinthians on how to properly celebrate the Lord's Supper, he says this, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. Notice Paul says he received from the Lord that which he delivered to the Corinthians. He didn't receive it from other disciples. He received it directly from the Lord. And so this indicates that Paul had interactions with the risen Christ where Jesus taught him the importance of this rite. This likely was when he spent three years in Damascus after his conversion. In his letter to the Galatians, he says, But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his Son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter. Paul then, after this, turns around and he delivers what he received from Christ to the Corinthians. I bring this up not only because we have this institution in the Gospels, but it was important enough for the risen Jesus to instruct Paul in this rite and for Paul then to subsequently do- teach the Corinthian church about it. It shows the importance of this meal. It shows the importance of the rite. And when Paul instructs the Corinthians on how to celebrate the mystery, he's not concerned primarily with how the Corinthians understand the metaphysics of bread and wine, which has really occupied the debates of this issue for a long time. But that's not really what he's concerned with. He's not concerned at all whether the Corinthians submit to the Bishop of Rome or not. That's not in view either. And he's not concerned with kind of the ceremonial minutia, which often accompanies these kinds of things. Do bells play during it? And yeah, do do they kneel when they take it? that's not in play either. What he's concerned with primarily is the unity of the church, the body of Christ as the church coming together as one and everyone partaking who is not under discipline is the main thrust of his argument in 1 Corinthians 11. Conduct at the Lord's Supper. St. Paul says, Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. The Lord's Supper is supposed to be a blessing. Paul says that when they are coming together, it is not a blessing that they are worse off, and how so? St. Paul continues, For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. There are divisions. Divisions are bad. There shouldn't be divisions. And then he goes on to say, For there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. So heresies and divisions, while bad, also manifest those who are approved. Now, it's not totally clear to me whether he's being sarcastic here or if he's just simply stating that truth, that heresies and divisions do manifest the Orthodox. He continues, Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. So things are so disordered with the celebration of the Lord's Supper that he removes the name of the Lord's Supper entirely from what they're doing. Now, perhaps this is just a strong way of saying that they're doing the Lord's Supper improperly. I think that that's what he's doing. But taken literally, we could say that those who have divisions among themselves don't even have a valid Lord's Supper. In any case, what he does describe 
as the issue is that some are eating the supper before others and some don't eat at all. Others are overindulging and they're getting drunk and there is not equality in who is approaching the table. Oh, equality. Oh, yeah, equality. Everybody has equal access to the table who ought to have equal access to the table. Some are deprived and others are greedy. He suggests that if you're hungry, you need to eat in your home. The Lord's Supper is not the place to do this, which also kind of probably shows that this becomes kind of this, this symbolic meal, kind of token meal of a, of a feast to come. He then instructs them in the words of institution uh, by Christ. He reiterates these by Christ, and then he writes this. Therefore, whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order when I come. So how has St. Paul described the Corinthians eating the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. How does he describe this? He describes their unworthy reception as divisive, as factious. Some eat and drink and others don't. It's pretty simple. They aren't examining themselves properly. This is a incredibly loaded term that's fraught with all kinds of uh, different interpretations. I would submit to you that examining oneself has to do with the external behavior of love and unity, not with introspection as it's often taught or thought. If one looks at kind of, if one looks at the lexical range of examine, uh, which is dokimazo in Greek and its cognates, it's never in reference to looking into your own being, kind of peering into your own soul and reflecting on it. That's not what it is. It always has to do with proving yourself in some kind of observable way, some kind of external test. When Paul says, Says, let a man examine himself he's saying let a man prove himself by correcting his behavior that's essentially what he's saying a cognate of the same word is used earlier when he says there must be factions so that those who are approved dokumoi may be recognized those who are examined may be recognized people who are approved are not being properly recognized they are not being recognized as being part of the body because they are being left out of the right and so the Corinthians have to correct themselves by discerning the Lord's body properly, which means discerning who is of the body and therefore permitting all who are part of the body to partake of the Lord's body. Discerning the body in this context does not mean discerning the metaphysics of the bread. It means discerning the unity of the church, which is the Lord's body. They must judge rightly who is in and who is out. Who can come to the table and who shouldn't come to the table? They must judge for themselves. They must judge rightly. And there is this twofold way of judging the Lord's, the Lord's body. Excommunication and communication. The Corinthians were ritually excommunicating certain members for wrong reasons. And so they were judged for it. Some of them were becoming weak and sick because they weren't judging properly. And so this is... A matter of life and death. This is a huge deal to judge who is in and who is out. It deals with the health of the church. And wrong judgment on the part of the church will incur proper judgment from God. And so St. Paul is saying it's necessary to get these judgments right and to be unified and democratic when it comes to the Lord's table. 
St. Paul emphasizes unity in the preceding chapter when he says, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. The great tradition. St. Paul's emphasis for unity is all over the place in his epistles. And to the Ephesians, he writes this, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called, in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in you all. In Galatians, we read that St. Paul confronts and corrects St. Peter for withdrawing table fellowship from the Gentiles. He says it was a matter of the gospel. St. Paul is concerned with the unity of the church, just as our Lord was. We read this in Jesus's high priestly prayer. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me and the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. The church being one affects whether the world will believe us. It affects our, our witness and usually kind of spineless liberals or soft conservatives talk this way, and they do it because they want to be like the world. But Jesus is saying, you need to be unified so that the world will believe, and whether they will believe that the Father had sent the Son, and that they are one. It affects our witness. So we must dwell together in unity because the Father and the Son dwell together in unity. We must love each other as the Father and the Son love each other. This is a seemingly impossible uh, uh, prayer, but it's made possible by the Spirit. It's made possible through the Spirit who's able to do these miraculous things. And so this strong concern for the unity of the church and in Jesus's prayer is seen in the early fathers too. And it manifests itself really in the Lord's Supper. In the Didache, we read, And concerning the broken bread, we give thee thanks, our Father, for the life and knowledge which thou didst make to us through Jesus, thy child. To thee be glory forever. And this broken bread was scattered upon the mountains, but was brought together and became one. So let thy church be gathered together, from the ends of the earth into thy kingdom. For thine is the glory and the power through Jesus Christ forever. Bishop Ignatius says to the Philadelphians, Take heed then to have but one Eucharist, for there is one flesh of our Lord Jesus Christ and one cup to show forth the unity of his blood, one altar, as there is one bishop along with the presbytery and deacons, my fellow servants. Kind of this emphasis on everything being one. St. Cyprian, the Bishop of Carthage, he says this, The sacrifices of the Lord themselves highlight the unanimity of Christians strengthened by solid, individual, visible charity. For when the Lord calls the bread formed of the union of many grains his body, and when he calls the wine pressed from many clusters of grapes and poured together his blood, in the same way he indicates our flock formed of a multitude united together. So we see Cyprian kind of bringing out kind of the, the way that creation teaches us through the simplicity of bread and wine and these things coming out of many and being one. And he says, see, this is teaching us at the church, which is many, many sheep, many people are also one. Lastly, St. Augustine says of the Lord's Supper, O sacrament of devotion, O sign of unity, O bond of charity. Conclusion. That Rome in the East don't discern the body correctly isn't unique to them. I think that this is a problem that Lutherans have by barring other faithful Christians from the Lord's Supper. It's a problem that almost all Western Christians have, not just Baptists, by barring children 
from the Lord's Supper, I don't think we are examining ourselves properly when we don't discern that faithful Christians and our own infants and children are part of the body. This, to me, because it, because people in Corinth were getting sick and dying, that God was judging them, it's a it's a bigger deal. You have to draw a line, I think, at a at a uh, kind of a closer place. It's not just well. If you believe if you believe that children don't come to the Lord's Supper, not a big deal. It seems to be a big deal. If certain people are excluded, that seems to be a pretty big deal. Who shouldn't be excluded? I think the case for allowing faithful Christians who don't necessarily hold to a Lutheran view of the supper should come to the supper. I think it's imperative on us that children who have nascent faith, infants who have nascent faith, should be allowed to partake of the bread and wine. It's for this reason that I can't be part of the Roman and Eastern Church, and it would present a pretty big problem for other traditions as well, who didn't practice pedo communion or open communion for other faithful Christians from other traditions. Mm-hmm.